0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Last Sunday at the conclusion of our service, we ended with a song called In Christ Alone. It's one of our favorite songs that we sing often here at New Life. And um, there's a stanza in that song where we sing, On that cross, as Jesus died... The wrath of God is satisfied. And you might remember, I think I told you um, a couple years ago about um, a decision that was made in another congregation to, excuse me, another denomination to change that stanza of that song. There was something about that wrath of God is satisfied that disturbed certain church leaders and there was a suggestion to change it to the love of God was magnified. There was even a request made to the writers of the song to change that stanza, and they refused. And so, that song, In Christ Alone, was not included in the hymnal that this denomination was putting together at the time. There was a concern about this idea of the wrath of God being satisfied by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, This phrase, the wrath of God, is something, isn't it, that we tend to react to with a certain level of reluctance? For some of us, this idea of a God of wrath is something that we kind of don't really want to talk about. It's something that maybe some of us are a little embarrassed about, and we kind of maybe sweep it under the rug and hope that we don't have to deal with it, because after all, we're modern, enlightened, sophisticated people who don't believe in things anymore, like the wrath of God. Is that right? There's a common conception when we think of God being wrathful, that God is hot-tempered, that He's um, abusive maybe, or that He's kind of a bully. And so those kinds of conceptions cause us to refrain, to talk too often about God as being one of wrath. And there's a temptation, as I've just told you, to remove that language from our songs. There might be a temptation to remove it from our theology. But here's one thing we can't do. We can't remove it from our Bibles. Because the Bible talks about the wrath of God. And as we get to verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, as we go through this sermon series on Romans, the greatest letter ever written, we see that Paul is going to talk to us about the wrath of God. Do you see that in verse 18? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is a New Testament book, friends. It's very common to think about the Old Testament God being one of wrath, but not the New Testament God. But here we are in the New Testament, and Paul is talking to us about the wrath of God. Now, he's going to continue through the end of the chapter, through verse 32, talking to us about the wrath of God. We're going to divide this portion of Scripture into two Parts. So next week we will talk about how the wrath of God is revealed. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's in present tense. The wrath of God is revealed. It is being revealed. How is it that we see the wrath of God being revealed? We'll talk about that next week. Today we're going to answer this question Why is God's wrath being revealed? Why is God's wrath being revealed? If God is angry, what is it that He's angry about? And that's what these passages tell us. We're going to go verse 18 through 23 today, and we'll pick up verse 24 and go to 32 next Sunday. But if you have your Bibles open to that passage, <clears throat> why don't you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word, Romans 1, 18 through 23. It reads like this, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Our God, we do ask that You would open our hearts and minds to understand this passage of Scripture. Would you please turn our hearts and minds toward you and prepare us, God, to live well for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Why is the wrath of God revealed? Why is God angry? That's what this passage is going to tell us about. And it could be that some of you have a kind of... um, uh, a, a negative reaction to, toward this idea of God being wrathful because of your own negative experiences in your own life toward certain people who perhaps have been wrathful towards you. Uh, maybe you've been the recipient of the wrath of a parent, or the wrath of a spouse, or the wrath of a boss. And you've seen that anger displayed in a very dysfunctional and kind of unhealthy way. And so you don't like to think of God in the same way. But I want you to know today that the wrath of God is different than the wrath that is expressed by sinful human beings. The wrath of God always flows from the righteousness of God. You see that link in verse 17, remember, that we talked about last week, we heard about the righteousness of God that was revealed. See that verse 17? The righteousness of God is revealed. And now in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. There's a connection between the two. God's wrath flows from his righteousness, it's an expression in a sense of his righteousness. And so here's how I would define God's wrath, it is his holy hostility against evil and wickedness. It's not God just flying off the handle, it's not God losing self-control in a fit of rage, it's his holy hostility flowing out of his righteousness against evil and wickedness. This is something we should be grateful for because all of us hate evil and wickedness. What a great thing it is to know that we have a God whose heart is set against it. And so we can think about it like this, too. God's righteousness is what exposes sin, evil, and wickedness as it is compared to God's righteousness. God's wrath opposes sin, evil, and wickedness. And what Paul is going to answer here for us is what it is that is making God so wrathful. So there's three things here, and they kind of build on one another. So the first point is this why God's wrath is revealed? First of all, it's because the existence of God is plain. What Paul would say here in these passages is that you and I, in all of our days, have never actually met an atheist or an agnostic, they don't actually exist. If you are here today and you are an atheist or agnostic, uh, I don't mean to be offensive to your views, but I think according to Paul, there is no such thing. What he says here in these passages is that the creation reveals the creator to all creatures. That really sums up very well what these verses are all about. God's creation reveals the creator to all creatures, starting in verse 19. Look what he says. What can be known about God is plain to them, that is to everyone, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The existence of God is plain. It is revealed in the created order. In the sun and the sky and the clouds and the lakes and the breeze, in the solar system and the planets and the stars, as we look and behold God's created order, what Paul is saying is that that is sufficient proof for the existence of God. And there's three things about this revelation of God's existence that I want to show you to help kind of clarify how plain this really is. First of all, this revelation is not obscure. Verse 19, look what Paul says. What can be known about God is plain. Verse 20, it is clearly perceived. It's not as if if you want to know if God exists that you have to pursue some diligent course of study, that you've got to reason your way to understand if God really exists or not, or that you have to have some kind of scientific proof or some kind of perfect logical syllogism. What Paul is saying here is no, that's not necessary. You don't have to really seek it out to know that God exists. It's it's not a matter of being educated or going to the right schools or being sophisticated enough to see it. It's plain. It's clear. It is obvious to everybody That's what Paul is saying. It's it's a mark of God's grace. He's being generous in exposing to all creatures that he's real and that he exists. John Calvin says it like this. He says, it's not a doctrine that must first be learned in school, but one of which each of us is a master from his mother's womb. We come out of the womb and we are a master of at least one thing, and that is that there is a God, and which nature itself permits none to forget, although many strive with every nerve to this end. So the existence of God is not obscure. It is also not vague. By that I mean it's, it's not like we don't really know what God is like. There is content to the created order that reveals something about God's existence. Do you see this in verse 20, where Paul says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, so we learn that God is eternal, he has no beginning or no end, and his divine nature, we come to know that whoever it is who created everything is divine, is God, is a being much unlike who we are, And Psalm 19, as Rebecca read to us a moment ago, tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So we know, as we look at the created order, that God is glorious. There's at least three distinct things we know about God. He's eternal, He's divine, and He's glorious. And we know that by simply looking at creation. That's what Paul is saying. It's not some vague thing, like we know there's a God, but it's really hard to know what He's like. We do know some things about what He's like. Because God is clear. That means as we see these things, we have to understand this God deserves our worship. This God deserves our submission. He observes our love and adoration. He deserves our trust because He's eternal, He's divine, and He's glorious. And then we see one other thing here, that the existence of God as revealed in creation is not temporary either. Because in verse 20 it says, These things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So it's not like it's something that primitive people would have believed, but we modern people won't believe. It's not that we modern people, because we are so bright, should be able to know it and the primitive people wouldn't know it. No, ever since creation, throughout all of history, creation has been shouting out that God exists and He is glorious and that you should worship and serve Him. The existence of God is plain, plain. Two quick suggestions by way of application. One, if you're a Christian, here's something that you should keep in mind. As you talk to people about the gospel, as you're evangelizing, you're getting into spiritual conversations with people, you can be encouraged to know that when you talk about the existence of God, there is always going to be a a connection point in your conversation. That really your task is not to prove that God exists to a person, but to awaken in the person the knowledge that they already have. And that's something, of course, that only the Holy Spirit can do, but He is often pleased to use us in our witness to do that. But this should, I think, change the way we approach others when we share the gospel, that we're we're tapping into something that everybody already knows. They're going to deny that they know it, but Paul says they do know it. And so we seek to awaken what's already there. But the other thing is for non-Christians, and it's simply this. Friends, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking there's just not enough evidence to believe in God, I want to point you to uh, the end of verse 20 here. Paul sums this whole thing up. He says the existence of God is plain. And so what that means is that you are without excuse. When judgment day comes and you meet God, if you try to say to him, I'm sorry God, I never believed in you because I didn't think there was enough evidence, that is not going to be persuasive. God's going to say there was enough evidence. My existence was clearly perceived by you all of your life, and you should have turned to me during the years I gave you on this earth. There's no excuse. So that's the first thing we see here. The existence of God is plain. But now it moves on to the second part, that the knowledge of God then is suppressed, that this is why God's wrath is being revealed, because He's made it so obvious. But then as we see the existence of God, what we do is we turn and we suppress it, we hold it down. So let's go to verse 18. In verse 18, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. I think maybe we can see ungodliness as our, um, our rejection uh, uh, vertically, our denying God in our lives, and then unrighteousness is kind of more of a horizontal kind of sin where we are um, in dysfunctional relationships with each other, with our friends and family and co-workers. And then Paul says that the root of this ungodliness and unrighteousness is this. It's that we, by our unrighteousness, suppress the truth. See that at the end of verse 18? Suppress the truth. We hold down the truth. Um, One translation says we put a shroud over the truth. And this is why some people think (laughs) that they are atheists or agnostics. It's because what is clearly perceived is now being suppressed. And if we suppress it long enough, we can convince ourselves that we really think that God doesn't exist. Our minds can be very, very creative in getting us to believe whatever we want to believe. So Paul is saying here, couple of examples here about what this holding down might look like. Imagine somebody with a basketball standing in a swimming pool and then holding that basketball down under the water. You know, it's kind of a tricky thing to do, and that basketball is kind of want to pop up out of the water. But he's just holding it down, and if you come to him and say, what do you got under you know, the water there? And they say, oh, I have nothing, nothing, I don't have anything down there. Well, yeah, you do. you got your hand over. No, no, no. I don't, I'm not holding anything down. All the while, the basketball is trying to come up and the person is just holding it down. That's, that's the picture here. Or um, consider this. Consider a, a, a TV signal. Actually, Mary and I are um, one of the few people who actually have an antenna. Uh, that's how we watch TV. We don't have cable. We have this giant antenna in our backyard and that's where we get our TV signal. So we have a A signal that comes to our antenna and our antenna receives that signal and comes down to our TV. But you know what we can do if we don't like what we see on the TV? We can turn down the sound. We can turn it off. We can suppress. We can hold down. We can put away. The problem is not the signal coming to the house. The problem is whether we want to receive the signal. And we have the option of turning it down and putting it away. And that's what Paul says everybody's doing with the signal from heaven that we are receiving in creation that God exists. We're turning the channel. Our problem, friends, is not with the evidence for God's existence. Our problem is our inability to think rationally about the evidence that is there. Because sin has this very profound effect on our minds. I mean, we think of sin affecting our hearts, we think of sin affecting our bodies because we get sick and we die. Do you think about how sin affects your minds, how how it corrupts your ability to perceive reality as it really is? That's a big problem for every fallen sinful individual. Isn't it interesting that in the Garden of Eden it was the tree of what that they weren't supposed to eat from, Adam and Eve? The tree of knowledge right? And when Adam and Eve ate from that tree, it corrupted the ability of the entire human race to think rightly about things. And Paul talks about this too. Verse 21, look what he says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. I mean, let me give you some examples of of how this works. Maybe you know what it's like when um, there's somebody that you really don't like. And uh, have you ever noticed how the way you think about that person is always kind of geared in a way to spin everything in a negative way? You see things that this person does, and you magnify them and make it worse than it really is. Anything good or positive that they do, you can't really see it as a good or positive thing. You, you rationalize it in such a way that, well, they probably had some kind of negative emotions there or motives, and we try to put it away. That, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what we do with God. See, we're born into this world with hearts that don't like God. We, we don't want somebody in our lives saying, I created you. I am sovereign over you, you live for me, I don't live for you, you are responsible to do what I tell you to do. Who wants that kind of person in their lives? And yet that's who God is, that's who God claims to be, that's who God rightfully is, and because our hearts reject that, we find ways to hold down that knowledge and to perceive him constantly in a negative way. It's the futility of our thinking. Here's another example. Have you ever um, woken up in the morning uh, by your alarm clock, and you look at the clock, and you want so badly to go back to sleep, and so you say to yourself, yeah, you know what, I think I can eat breakfast, take a shower, get dressed, get the kids ready, and study my Bible and pray in 15 minutes. I can do that snooze, and you go back to sleep. You, have you ever done that? You, you kind of talk to yourself, you convince yourself that I actually have time, when you don't? That's kind of an, exam, an example of the futility of our thinking. Here's one more example. How about the various stages of grief that people go through when something tragic has happened in their lives or a loved one has been lost? The first stage is what is called a stage of denial where you just kind of block out the facts. You kind of refuse to accept things as they really are. It's called a stage of denial. What Paul is saying is that all of us are born into this world in a state of denial. Unbelievers today are in a state of denial. They're denying what they know. They'll they'll lie to themselves. They'll say anything to get them off the hook for believing in God. Here's what a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge said, a British Christian commentator years ago. He says, people don't believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. People believe lies because they want to. Whatever it is you believe about God, about heaven, about life, about what is right and wrong, that's a good question for you to ask yourself. Are you believing it because you want to believe it, or are you believing it because it's true? Here's the kinds of things people will say. There's no proof for the existence of God. I've known a few Christians, and they were hypocrites. Therefore, God must not exist. I mean, what kind of rational argument is that? (laughs) But you've heard it many times. The Bible is full of lies and contradictions. Therefore, God doesn't exist. How can anybody really know? And that's what we hear probably more often today than anything. We can't really know. So therefore, I'm just going to put God on the back shelf in the closet, and just forget about him and act as if he doesn't exist. We will tell ourselves all kinds of lies in order to get out from being accountable to God. And just so you know that I'm not going to pick on just the atheists and agnostics, friends, all of us are atheists at heart. Even Christians act like atheists sometimes. Do you know what prayerlessness is? It's a form of functional atheism you're just living your life as if god doesn't exist. How about when things get really hard in your life and you want something to go this way and something else happens and you're upset and you're mad at god. What do you say? God's not in this. God's absent. Where is god? I'm not getting what I want. Where is he? Like he must not exist. Or how about you're faced with a certain temptation, something you really want to do, you know it's wrong. What do you do? You you start telling yourself lies. God's not going to see this. God's not paying attention. God's not watching. And you start acting as if God doesn't exist. All of us are really members of Atheist Anonymous. We're all recovering members of that group. And that's why it's so important, friends, that we're in Scripture, that we're in the Bible, that we're allowing God's revealed Word to shape our thinking. As Jesus says, it's the truth that will set us free from this. But here's one reason why. The wrath of God is revealed. Existence of God plain, knowledge of God suppressed, and then one more thing, the worship of God then becomes defiled. It's kind of a various steps of degeneration here. Even though people suppress the truth about God, that doesn't mean that they stop worshiping. Even though people are suppressing the truth about God, it doesn't mean that they stop worshiping. What happens is instead they begin to worship something else in God's place, and you see this in verse 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the one worthy of worship, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles what's sometimes called the great exchange, the glory of God, suppressed and denied and held down, and then mere creatures, images of creatures, then elevated to creator status and worship. And God's response to this is that this is, this is foolishness. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and it makes us worthy Of his wrath. Now you might say to yourself, wait a minute, I don't worship birds, animals, reptiles. (laughs) I don't have some giant lizard up in my living room that I'm bowing down to. I don't worship animals. Well, okay, maybe not, but you do worship something. That there is something or someone who has captured your heart, someone or something where your deepest hopes and longings lie. There's someone or something to which you are looking to justify you, to make you okay, to save you. There's something in your life like that. Someone, something that has absolute preeminence and to which, at least in your heart, you're bowing down and worshiping. There's a guy named David Foster Wallace, who, um, famous author, sadly committed suicide uh, a few years ago. There's a picture of him here on the cover of Newsweek. <clears throat> not, a, not a believer, not a Christian. But watch what he says here. He gave a commencement address at com- uh, Kenyon College in 2005. And w- watch what he says here. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough, it's the truth. (coughs) Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you, bury you, I think is what he means. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace is confirming what Paul is saying here in verse 23. That. We're either worshiping the true God or we're worshiping something else. The people in Paul's days worshiped birds and reptiles. You and I today are tempted to worship sex, intelligence, power, any number of false gods. You know that story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? You remember that from John chapter 4? It's a very interesting exchange in that story between. Jesus and the woman, he he says to her very bluntly and directly, he says, you know what, you worship what you do not know. You're a worshiper, Samaritan woman, but you you worship falsely. You, You have a false idea of what to worship. You're worshiping wrongly. He goes on and he says what the Father is looking for is true worshipers. There is such thing as false worship and true worship. And what Jesus says there is that the Father is looking for true worshipers. My question to you today is, are you a true worshiper or a false worshiper? Whatever it is you're worshiping, can it fulfill the deepest longings of your heart? Can it forgive your sins? Can it raise you from the dead? Can it remove the wrath of God from you? That's an important question to ask. What the Bible would tell us is that there is is one who is worthy, fully worthy of your worship, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has come from heaven for sinners. He is worthy of your worship. You see, as we look at creation, it tells us that God exists, and because of that, the wrath of God is revealed but here's something that creation won't tell you how the wrath of God can be removed <laughs> creation won't tell you that the bible will let me show you here in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 musicians you guys can come forward uh, as we get ready to close 1st Thessalonians 1 says this we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In Jesus Christ, we have God's existence made even more plain because He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who has come as the exact representation of His being. And in Jesus, we behold the truth in the flesh. He is the way and the truth and the life. We don't have to suppress the truth. We can know the truth and have relationship with Him. And in Jesus, we see the one who is fully worthy of our worship, the one who gives us access to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God. So, we got to keep that stanza in In Christ Alone. And I'm glad we sing it, and we will continue to sing it here, because here is... The resolution to this problem of the wrath of God, it's that on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was indeed, praise God, fully and completely satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the truth that you have spoken to us in it. God in heaven, you are right to be full of wrath and you are gracious to deliver us from it in Jesus. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.